This episode is brought to you by the Brodies Tennis Invitational. If you've been glued to your screen watching all the action from SW19 and it's inspired you to get out there and watch some live tennis yourself, then the Brodies Tennis Invitational is your perfect post-Wimbledon fix. Live from the heart of Edinburgh City Centre at the Edinburgh International Conference Centre from the 28th to the 30th of September, this three-day tennis tournament combines world-class tennis talent with Scotland's rising tennis stars. And this year's event features not one, not two, but three Grand Slam finalists, including... Feliciano Lopez, Johanna Conta, Mark Filipousis, Marcos Bagdatis, Greg Rosetsky, Ali Collins, and fresh from her incredible run to the Wimbledon quarterfinals, Maya Lumsden. And if a day or weekend trip to Edinburgh for some top quality tennis doesn't sound enticing enough, we also have a very special offer for Tennis Weekly listeners. Yes, that's right. If you use our exclusive code WEEKLY10, you'll receive 10% off all tickets. That's WEEKLY10 for 10% off your tickets. Tickets start at £55. Go to brodiesinvitational.com for more information. And to purchase your tickets now, the link is in the description. Please take your seats quickly, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Tennis Weekly with Joel, Kim and Chris. On today's Wimbledon semi-finals catch-up, sponsored by DownloadTennis.com. Djokovic sets up Alcaraz showdown. Jabor ready for Von Drusseva test. And Neil Skepsky makes the Wimbledon men's doubles final. Chris, today is the 14th of July and we are here to catch up on the semi-finals of Wimbledon. We now know our finalists. We have Onjabor, Marketa Von Drusseva for the women and Novak Djokovic, Carlos Alcaraz for the men. And I'm not going to lie, I was I was full of hope, I think, going into the semi-finals, particularly the men's semi-finals. And of course, we're going to be catching up on all um, the action uh, over the last couple of days. But did those men's semi-finals, did they live up to expectation? They did not, unfortunately. They were over in a flash. I mm. mean, you were on centre court, obviously, to watch the Sabalenka-Jabur match. And that was the pick of the semi-finals, really, in terms of, of what yeah. happened in that match. That was excellent. So, Joel, if I was picking one of the four, I think you <laughs> went to the, the best one. Yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, yeah, it was a little bit of a letdown, wasn't it? The, the men's, men's semi-finals, particularly, I think Medvedev Alcaraz, which we'll, we'll get on to because that was a straight sets affair, and I just, I just did not think that was going to be that straightforward for Carlos Alcaraz. Yeah, I didn't either. I was looking at the scores and I was watching some of it, and every time you thought maybe like there's a break back, there's a, a little hiccup coming, there was none, and. Having seen him play against some of the other players he's played this week, you thought Medvedev would put up more resistance. Um, but it was a, a very surprising result. And it seems a little bit like we just had to get through the semifinals to get to the epic final. You know? Exactly. Exactly. We, we're going to be previewing the, the men's final and the, and the women's final, actually. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm already kind of... Well, we've been in this situation before, you know, French Open semifinals. And that also probably, if we're being honest, didn't really live up to all the hype um so i'm just hoping yeah that final does deliver but we're going to be talking about the two men's semi-finals first of all and we're going to start with novak djokovic yannick sinner djokovic came through this in straight sets six three six four seven six won yet another tie break in all honesty sinner should have probably pushed it to a fourth he had chances in that in that third set but alas novak djokovic is just playing tennis that is it's just on another level or, or a few more levels above what Yannick Sinner can deliver. Yeah, and it's, it's not even just his tennis is on another level. It also feels like there's something kind of um, guiding him through, you know, in the times when it gets very close. It's almost like there's some sort of like divine intervention that happens where it means that the person he's playing sort of misses a few shots and he somehow turns around these situations that looks like it could get a bit dicey. Um, yeah, and in, in that third set, there were chances for Sinner. And it almost just feels like no matter what happens, Novak Djokovic will still it's come through win those sets. Three. Yeah, yeah it, it really did feel like that. And um, Or if Djokovic did want to play a fourth, then they play a fourth. But it feels like it's very much up to him to decide in terms of what level he brings. Um, and we saw that in the Rublev match where his level wasn't as high in the first set. 
and quite often he's unable to elevate it and basically win a straight sets match after that. Um, but for, for, for Sinner in this one, I thought at least he did put in a, a, a much better showing um, in the third set. He didn't play badly by any measure. I think he hit, I mean, a lot of winners. He had a positive winner differential, 44 winners, 35 unforced errors. Um, and it just kind of makes you think a bit like that her catch match. It's when you hit the winners, it's when you make the errors that it really matters. And Djokovic doesn't make errors at important moments. Particularly on those on those break points as well, because Sinner, you know, I will say he did create opportunities for himself, particularly in those opening games. I was, you know, seeing him eke his way into the, the Djokovic service games. And I was like, oh, we've got a bit of a, a competition going on here. And um, you know, he manufactured six break points, but they were all saved um, by Djokovic. And I just think in those moments, Sinner... He did not play the big points well. He was, mm. he was, he almost felt quite nervous. He almost like knew what he had to do, and he he went for a little bit extra, and it always sort of ended up in you know shot going wide, shot going long, and um, it, it, it sort of just led to this sort of inevitable conclusion that um, no matter what Yannick Sinner was going to do, no matter what situation he was going to find himself in, Novak Djokovic was was ultimately going to to prosper in the end. Yeah, and I think it's that, that thing that must be in your head when you're playing that Novak Djokovic doesn't give you many chances. And it's a similar thing for the Hercatch match as well, where you know when you have those moments that it's such a hard line as to whether do you go for more, do you dial it back? I mean, he's not going to miss. And so if you know that Djokovic isn't going to miss in those important moments, you're not going to get a freebie. You have to make something happen. Mm. And that's a very different way of playing a point, um, especially on break point, because you've got to do something special and making that happen instantly is really difficult. And I mean, in terms of the serving display from Djokovic, he hit 11 aces and zero double faults. He's only been broken three times in this entire tournament. And the fewest times he's been broken on a run to a slam is five. So getting to this point, he's serving um, and has some of the best service stats that he's ever had in his career leading up to a Grand Slam final. Yeah, and it feels like if even if everything wasn't stacked in, in Novak Djokovic's favour, the roof being on, I think, certainly helps. Um, it was on for this this semi-final. It's been on for every match, really. It has, actually. It, it's felt like that. He's played an indoor tournament for Wimbledon. Effectively, he has, hasn't he? And, and uh, you know, the weather forecast is a little bit iffy for tomorrow, so it remains to be seen if... Um, the men's final will be uh, under a roof, but you would certainly think that favours Novak Djokovic. I mean, talking about Yannick Sinner, you know, the last time they played, he was two sets up on, on Djokovic and lost in five sets. And it was a much closer and, and tighter affair. What do you think Yannick Sinner needs to do in order to get to a, a maiden a Grand Slam final to be competitive against someone like a Novak Djokovic? When me and Kim were speaking about this in terms of Rublev and Djokovic Kim was basically like he just needs to wait until Djokovic retires what's your view on on Sinner is he in that category or do you genuinely believe that he has the tools to defeat Djokovic at a Grand Slam I think I'm with Kim on this unfortunately in terms of he needs a better draw the draw cannot have Mm. Novak Djokovic and then I think, unfortunately for Sinner, he does come up against some of the players who are playing the best tennis. That's the nature of the draw. As you move through the US Open, he was up against Alcaraz. We've seen him up against lots of players and it might not be, you know, two sets to to love or this was two sets to one for Alcaraz Sinner. I remember in that one and, and he did sort of bow out having really, I mean, he should have won that one as well. And it comes down to the fact that he's got the tennis, he's got the game. Um, but he isn't necessarily at this point in time the the ultimate match player. And there's a few players um, like the Nadals where he's managed to um, put in a great showing. And that's what I think he does. He tends to put in a good showing. But this year, I think it's a different Novak Djokovic. Um, and we talked about this in Australia. We talked about it in Paris. Uh, I mean, he is leads ahead of uh, the rest of the field. So a very tough one for him because I do think that if he were to play against Alcaraz he would have had more chances but at the same time Alcaraz from seeing him play on centre court I think there are a couple of players that Sinner wouldn't be able to beat at a major this year but I mean now you've heard what Kim and I think Joel but what do you think in terms of of Sinner? Yeah it's it's tough I think you know he's got such like effortless power and and there are times where you know the sound the sound of the of the the ball when it comes off the racket from him on an indoor court it just feels so 
explosive. And I think from a, an ability point of view, I, I certainly feel like he's got the, the tools to make it a Grand Slam final. But do I think he has the belief and the number of times he's lost at, you know, the, the, the quarterfinal stage, the number of times like he's lost to, you know, to, to Novak Djokovic at, at Wimbledon. I just think that he doesn't necessarily have the, the confidence that he can he can actually do it and that he actually believes. And it must be demoralizing when you make these opportunities and you're trying to have that positive mindset to really kind of stem the tide and, and prove the haters wrong. It must be so frustrating when you're just not able to eke those moments. And I think I think it will come uh, eventually, but I do think it almost needs to be a mind, maybe a mindset change in terms of, and perhaps maybe the decision making on on those big points because he didn't necessarily need to go for as much as he did to, to I feel like get those breaks mm. and once he I feel like once he was he he may have got one of those he would have been in in business I think and um, it's it's a few things but I think they're they're maybe like minute things but they are things that I think make a world of difference at this stage of a tournament. So do you think, based on kind of that answer, I feel like it's, he's falling into the Medvedev camp of, of um, mm. when he will get a slam. It might be a little bit later. It might not be as early as people thought, but maybe he will be a player who does push on and maybe it's a US Open, maybe it is a Wimbledon, but it might not be kind of the, uh, the rivalry that he's been billed as with Carlos Alcaraz, the two of them, and maybe yeah. Hogaruna will be cleaning up the next 60 Grand Slams or something like that. <laughs> And I think he does have tremendous like maturity and, and temperament on, on the court, which I think really counts for something at, at this stage of, of Grand Slams where, you know, he handles the occasion. He doesn't get he doesn't let the situation get on top of him. You know, that's his demeanor on the court. We don't really see him berate the umpire or get into arguments or, or throw his racket. And I think having that calmness does does help him but at the same time when you do look at it against Novak Djokovic you're sort of wondering like does he need to change it up because it's it's not worked for him so far is there a little bit more fire and passion that maybe he needs to outwardly show and express that could maybe bring a, a different type of, of sinner to the court that can help him get over the game line because we saw that with Ons Jabor I feel you know she talked about the old Ons would have lost that match against Arena Sabalenka and I think Yannick Sinner is like He's still in that old sinner mode and, and he needs to think about what's what's the new sinner going to be that is going to let me get to a Grand Slam final for the first time. Yeah, I love that. And I think uh, what On said, and I think in terms of the passion, maybe you can harness some of the passion from the Karota boys because they're certainly passionate mm. about him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I love they did like a little montage in terms of what does what does Yannick Sinner need to do uh, to beat Novak Djokovic? And it was like a little, uh, I saw one of them was like doing some exercise, doing some weights. And just sort of needs to make some games. The Karata boys are saying, <laughs> "Goodness, they're now going to become part coaches, part commentators." Yeah. So what? What shall help? I know. I mean, soon. it was it was great to see them. I think they just add so much, and it's uh, yeah. I'm, I'm hoping we'll see more of them um, as the tour goes on. I mean, we have to talk about Novak Djokovic and, and two moments in particular during the match because, as much as Yannick Sinner did put up a fight, there were at times where I thought Novak Djokovic was in a battle with the umpire. Richard Haig and this has caused a lot of debate amongst tennis fans the hindrance call against him during the match it felt like everyone in the crowd were surprised and a little bit shocked by it um, on, on the point when it happened Novak Djokovic you could see was bubbling and and steaming I think a little bit inside what did you make of it because we don't often get hindrance calls I don't think we've ever had actually a hindrance call against Novak Djokovic in such a high profile match and at such a high profile moment yeah I mean I think we're all very um well everyone was surprised by it um no one saw it coming particularly and it didn't actually appear to hinder anyone I know that's not the point of what hindrance is and what the rule is um it was more just an elongated noise um and I think when it comes to this it's it's one where when you're playing in a big match, I personally wouldn't have made the call if I was the umpire because I actually think then the hindrance is actually coming from the umpire in the sense that something that wasn't necessarily a big thing has become a bigger thing. And I think a lot of umpires don't call things when they should. So again, I think consistency with umpiring because I don't think that many umpires would have called this. 
I mean, Yannick Sinner got the ball back in play very yeah. like very easily. So it was a little bit awkward. He called hindrance. And then you would think, well, if he called that, then, you know, Sinner might have been affected, you know, might not have been able to get the shot back in. But he, he comfortably made it. Yeah, exactly. And I think when we have seen it before and um, where it could, where it has been hindrance. So, for example, there was a very famous one. If you cast your mind back to the slam that Sam Stosa won in 2011, um, Serena Williams hit an absolute rocket of a forehand and she celebrated as soon as she hit it. Um, could Sam Stosa have got it? No, of course she couldn't. It would have taken down like a barn door it was hit so hard. But <laughs> the fact that she made the noise, I thought that felt like hindrance um, because you can't celebrate too early. And although that was a tough call, it was a good one. I think when called hindrance, it's something that everyone knows on the court. Like Sinner would know, you, the player would know, another one with Serena with Venus in a Wimbledon final. Uh, Serena made a noise and Venus and Serena both accepted it. But the fact they uh, made the decision, not the umpire, because it, Venus decided she was hindered by it. Um, and so I think with this one, it just feels so unnecessary. So I, I do think I'm on the John McEnroe school of thought that maybe he wanted to get his name in the paper. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because I really I, don't yeah. understand why, why he said anything at all. Yeah, I, I thought that was actually quite a, a, uh, a, a comment I actually agree with. Uh, yeah, from, from John McEnroe. Um, it, First it time felt, for everything. <laughs> yeah, it felt, um, it felt out of place. It didn't feel right. And I don't think it was completely necessary. And uh, we certainly don't see similar types of grunts that are extended get called you know i think about like arena sabalenka i feel like she does it like you know most points alexander bublik in that andre rublev uh, match when he hit that that miracle shot yeah, he celebrated the, it yeah the the double-handed backhand that bublik hit he hit it with with an extended grunt um i, I dread to think that yeah richard haig probably would have called that hindrance so we wouldn't have got the miracle shot that, that Rublev got back so um, again it comes down I think to, to consistency and that's what makes I think this so surprising um, and so shocking I mean it's interesting Taylor Fritz has come out on social media and had some things to say about it he said I can't speak to this specific instance because I didn't see it Novak doesn't come to my mind when I think of this rule but some players I can think of extend stroke delay grunts a lot on big points to put you off and it needs to be called more by umpires. So he thinks it should be, uh, we should be hearing hindrance more on the tour for these extended grunts. Do you, do you agree with that? Or, or do you think that, you know, actually it's a bit OTT? I think when it comes to grunting, it's very difficult to decide where a grunt ends and what is a natural um, sort of exhale. Um, so I think it would have to be done um, in a way that would, almost say that you couldn't really grunt um or your grunt had to finish before your opponent hit the ball that that tends to be the rule as well um of thumb um i i think umpires should make a lot more calls i think we kind of allowed the game to become this sort of crazy tv spectacle where you kind of almost you're making the noises for the effort and um i think that's kind of the challenge with it would be how do you school that so if there isn't a consistent rule and if it isn't able to be used consistently then i think um, only use it for the exceptions and I did not feel this was an exception yeah exactly and you know we all we had yeah this battle I think between Novak Djokovic and the umpire and at times we also had I think a battle between Novak Djokovic and the crowd because you sense the crowd just wanted they wanted a match um, they wanted it to be competitive they wanted to they wanted it to go long and as a result when when Djokovic was down or facing break points against his serve we saw moments where you know they were like I hate you know basically saying I hope you double fault or you know they're applauding an, an error and Djokovic took this in was aware of it and um, you know I think he gave a thumbs up and, and applauded at, at one moment and then <laughs> came back won the game on, on his serve and then did kind of a, a cry crying sort of emotion uh, to the crowd what did you what did you make of this because to me I was just like Oh, the crowd have just stirred the pot even more. And it's like, I know what you're trying to do, but it's having the complete opposite effect. I thought it was genuine emotion from Novak Djokovic. I thought he was genuinely crying on court. <laughs> he was super sad at how badly this match was going for him. Um, no, but yeah, it's it's a funny one, I think. Um, obviously, players want a match, but I do think that Djokovic doesn't deserve that at all, given the performances that he's had. How He is obviously um, the GOAT 
Um, and I think it's it's fine to cheer people on, but I think at Wimbledon this year there's been a little bit foul of that in terms of really hoping whether it sits a pass against a Brit or whoever it is, um, we shouldn't be kind of cheering double faults and you can really rally players and really cheer them on. Um, but I do think that doesn't have to come at like one of the great expenses because um, I just don't think it was really necessary. And also, as you say, um, Djokovic, it kind of seemed to inspire him even more to get the job done to make the Didn't point. Didn't we learn what... this from Djokovic yeah. Federer all those years ago in the yeah. in that Grand Slam final? Yeah, I think we did. But then at the same time, it's like, why is he so aware of it? You know, I always imagine he would be like super serene in the zone. Mm. Like he's done all of his uh, sort of meditation and he's just not aware of it. But I guess it does get to you and you do hear it, even Novak Djokovic does. And um, he's human, turns I out. Think he wants, I think he wants to hear it because as I said, I think it, it provides... Uh, you know, it provides fuel, Loves it provides motivation and it's it spurs him on. And I don't I don't think we're gonna hear the last of it, to be honest, in the you know, in in the men's final. I do think Were also, they Djokovic supporters though, Joel? Is that that the conspiracy you're saying? Well his I, I fans don't know. know if you Well, if you that's do, a good yeah, you know, yeah. That's a, a funny way to look reverse at it. Reverse psychology. It, it could be reverse psychology. I mean, I do think also it's just testament to how good Novak Djokovic is in terms of like people are like almost like actively like trying to put him off, clap, <laughs> irk him um, to make a match of it just because of the levels um, you know he's bringing to the court. So yeah, it was um, yeah it was interesting. It's it's always fascinating I think with with Wimbledon because this is one of his homes. You know, alongside I'd say Rod Rod Laver Arena, and you know, he hasn't lost on on centre court for for a decade, but it still doesn't feel like he gets the respect that he deserves yeah i'm i'm over that now from people i think people need to fully get on board the Djokovic. i think we're just gonna miss him i know he's like you love to hate him but we're gonna you know you deep down know we're gonna be missing him when he's gone oh yeah and when i got to watch him twice this wimbledon i was elated to have him on the billing because what he does in the court is incredible and whether you think he's your favorite of the big three or whatever i would just always rather have one of the big three playing in a tournament for as long as possible and Mm. People need to understand that uh, it doesn't take anything away from anyone else's achievements and what Djokovic has done deserves a lot of respect. Exactly. And he will be going for his eighth Wimbledon singles title. It's amazing. I know. Could equal Roger Federer. In his way will be Carlos Alcaraz, who came through against Daniel Medvedev. This was another straight sets job. 6-3, 6-3, 6-3. Now, what was quite interesting to me for this was they had played at Wimbledon uh, before in in 2021, two years ago. And the result in that match was straight sets to Daniel Medvedev. So a complete uh, role reversal two years later. Were you surprised by the result or... Well, actually, two questions. Were you surprised by the result and were you surprised by the scoreline? I wasn't surprised by the result because I had been um, reading quite a lot about the matchup um, and why this was a very bad matchup for Medvedev in terms of the way that Carlos is able to play. Um, so for me, it felt like it, it would be a tough one, but I I was genuinely surprised by the fact that it was, I mean, 3-3-3. Three, three, and three. I mean, that was, if someone said nine games, I said, well, maybe he'll get nine games in the first two sets. It'll be much, much closer. Um and so I think for, for many people who were watching or had tickets, I think we, we spoke about this in terms of um, this this match, especially at 1 hour 50, that is exactly what they needed almost on the schedule and on the billing for Wimbledon earlier in the tournament so they could get through the matches. Mm. Um, but it does feel like when we get to this stage of, of the major that they Carlos and, and Novak are kind of leagues above um, in, in the tennis they can put on display. So I was surprised, but not surprised in terms of the overall result. Um, but surely you were surprised by the scoreline as well, because I think we were messaging, thinking this is going to be over really quickly. <laughs> yes, I know. I thought I thought we were going to go much later than we did, and you know, a lot of a lot of talk around. I think Daniel Medvedev and his his court positioning on a grass court, and this idea that you just can't stand as far back as he does on on a grass Doesn't court work. and expect to win, particularly against a uh, you know an aggressive attacking player like Carlos Alcaraz. Um, you know, he's the world number one. He knows how he's, he can take the initiative in, in, you know, in the rally. And I thought Alcaraz actually, his return game was exceptional you know, against Medvedev. You know, Medved, one of his biggest weapons is, is his serve, but it was completely nullified, I think, against, 
um, you know, the the Alcaraz has returned. But what do you think on on Medvedev in terms of what he needs to do to to sort of close the gap with with Alcaraz? Because I just think he came onto the court and sort of was going to just try and play it like he's played it, uh, you know, all the way through the tournament. And he almost needed to change his game plan up, but we just got the same kind of same Medvedev in terms of I'm just going to try and rally from the baseline, stay in the point as long as possible. And it, I just don't feel like you can you can do that against someone like Carlos Alcaraz. Yeah, I think maybe he was a little bit defeated before he got on the court because it is such a bad matchup as we kind of described. And um, especially when Alcaraz is able to move so quickly, he can be aggressive and he finished so many points at the net, which is something that when you think about Alcaraz, probably that match that they played in 2021, you wouldn't necessarily think that he was a player that likes to finish at the net. So he was able to set up um, the points so that he actually finished at the net 36 times and he won 28 of those yeah. points. Well, it's because Medvedev was so deep. He was like, hang on, so I'm, I'm going to take the initiative here. I'm going to I'm going to come in and close off the point. You have to move up the court. And so I think that's something which is um, genuinely really impressive with the way that he was able to not only cover the most ground in terms of he actually did move more and retrieve more balls, but he was also able to um, really kind of play aggressive front foot, move forward, move up the court. And it's, it would be the blueprint for playing uh, for playing Medvedev on grass. You'd watch this match back and think, right, this is what I've got to do. Um, and for Medvedev on grass in future, I think he'll probably keep doing what he does because the semi-final at Wimbledon is best result here. It's a mm. good result. Um, there's nothing to be kind of uh, sniggered upon at. I think it's, it's very impressive he made it. Um, but I don't think he really thought he was in contention for the title. Um, and that kind of showed. Yeah, and I would like to see him, yes, be a bit closer to the baseline. I think I saw a video actually of of him actually trying to return serve when he did step in closer to the baseline, and he just wasn't able to do it. Um, you know, he's, as I said, I'm almost think he's like too comfortable from being like you know yeah. so far back behind the baseline that it's almost like that's one way. And yes, you're really good at it, but that way is not going to work for absolutely every tennis player on the tour and when you get up to to this level against someone like Carlos Alcaraz yeah it's it's a bad matchup so I think he needs to change yeah his his dynamic but Carlos Alcaraz is through he is now going to be the fourth youngest Wimbledon men's singles finalist in the open era so very impressive from that front are you surprised at all of him getting to a, a grass court Grand Slam final given he's still a relative novice on the surface yes he did win Queens in in the build-up but are you surprised he's, he's been able to to kick on and and get to his first ever Wimbledon final or or at the same time you're like well this just shows how talented he is regardless of of what of what surface he's on yeah I think that's um uh, I think that's so true that not everyone would have thought this because his game is built for clay um it is and but is it to... though? Is it though? Is it like, are we just thinking that because he's Spanish and, and we just, no, you know. That's how his game would have, have grown and developed. So I think that's kind of what I was going to go on to say is that how much he's been able to adapt it for the different surfaces, which I think we talk about players who can adapt. Medvedev is obviously one who's not the king of adapting. He's the king kind of adapting his, his shots for, mm. to play them for nine metres behind the baseline, nine feet, sorry, behind the baseline. Um, and I think that's something which even kind of Djokovic has said is so impressive about him is that, you know, many people wouldn't have expected him to play so well on grass because um, of the fact that his game is kind of built for slower courts. Um, but he's so good at adapting his game to the challenges um, of his opponents and of the surface. And I think that's the key with someone like Alcaraz. He's obviously put the time in when it comes to his movement on the surface um, because he is moving so well this year. But also in terms of his opponents, he does figure out the way to play them on the day. So I think when you combine that sort of winner's mentality, he's able to do that. Um, I think it's really impressive to see how he's able to kind of meet those challenges. And for me, having seen him at Queens, I'm not surprised he was in the final. Um, I believe I put him in the final, Joel. I believe he might have oh, put okay. a certain Holger Runa. Okay, um, okay. So finally, some predictions are working <laughs> Finally, some predictions are working for you, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, we're going to get obviously Djokovic, Alcaraz. We had that, what I would say was a false start. Um, in in that French Open semi final, I just hope Alcaraz doesn't cramp and we get like a a match where, yeah, we can see both of them fully go toe to toe with each other in in a best of five set format. And you know, got the added incentive as well, maybe a little bit less of an incentive for for Djokovic, but the world number one ranking is also going to be on the line. So um, calendar Grand Slam. 
is on the line. Oh, Calendar Grand Slam is online. There's a lot. There's a lot at stake here, isn't there? Do you think like these extra things are gonna add pressure to the to the moment, or do you think they're just gonna be able to kind of go on and just be uninhibited and play their best tennis? I think for Alcaraz in the French Open. When you are in that situation and you think about what's the best case, what's the worst case scenario, um, in many ways, um, what happened from a nervous perspective was the worst case scenario. And I actually think it's probably quite freeing for him in terms of the fact that that has now happened and you have to bring about a way that it won't happen again. But also, um, that was all fine still. He made the, he made the semifinals there. He's now in another final. Um, that isn't anything more than uh, an isolated event right now. So... I actually think it, it will be different. And the fact that this is obviously Djokovic's home court um, and the expectations are low for Alcaraz in this situation, everyone expects Novak Djokovic to win. Whereas I think that match of the French Open, people were 50-50. Um, and that makes it very different, I think, because he is the underdog. He is the one number one and the underdog um, against someone who has done this so many times before. So I just think the pressure is on Djokovic. Um, if he feels pressure, which I'm not sure he does. <laughs> well, I'm going to ask you for your prediction in a sec. But I want to, before I just get on to that, I do need to address a news story that, that came up a few days ago. The talk of Carlos Alcaraz's dad um, filming and videoing Novak Djokovic training sessions. What do you make of this? Is this like Spygate or, or like is this like genuinely trying to get a competitive advantage if it happened or is this just a bit like Carlos Alcaraz's dad is a big Djokovic fan and he just wants to see his tennis and and and, and relive it? I, I'm not I'm not really sure, but yeah, where do you stand on like kind of family members from other camps taking videos of other players that they may they may face in the future? I think with the practicing, that is a little bit um, odd uh, because a lot of discussions will happen about tactics, how someone's feeling. And you want players in those situations to be able to communicate openly without kind of thinking there are spies around in that sense. But it's not unusual, I don't think, to check out a practice session um, in terms of the way that the courts and practice sessions are set up. It's either on one of the courts of Wimbledon or it's on the practice courts and they're all next to each other. So you might overhear something, you might see something. So I don't think it's that bad. I think either way, I think um, it's trying to get a little bit desperate maybe i'd say if you think that recording <laughs> yeah exactly a practice everything session. is conspiring against Djokovic. the umpires the fans um, people in the bush Carlos Alcaraz's Alcaraz's dad dad. In the bushes, yeah. maybe you know <laughs> trying to find well, out what goes into that magic drink that he had you know <laughs> well we we yeah, i mean the final is going to be on sunday i am now going to ask you for your prediction who is winning and in how many sets oh that's a tricky one um i I do think there's going to be a chance for Carlos, um, but I'm going to I have to say Djokovic in three. I really do. Djokovic in three. Wow. I wasn't expecting the number three to turn up there. Well, I just think that the difficulty is, is it is those, if you get to a tie break, I'm not sure he's going to break him particularly much. Um, he might break him a couple of times, but I do think that Djokovic also is one of the best returners ever. Um and so I just think if you get to a tie break, who would my money be on? It'd be on Djokovic. So I could see a couple of tie breaks in there. Um, I think it's going to be very difficult for him. I don't know. What about you, Joel? Djokovic in three. No. Um, <laughs> I about to say, yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> no, I'm going to say Djokovic in five. Um, I think... Five? Oh, that'd yeah. be epic if that happens. I know, that would be epic, right? Maybe I'm just like... Under the roof. Under yeah, the roof, remember? I, I, think, I think the roof might have a big factor at play i think it might be more comfortable for for djokovic if um the roof is on so that remains to be seen but yeah i think we're going to get well i, I think we're going to get a much better match i think than the, the, the that french open semi-final and um yeah i still got to go with ultimately in the end i still got to go with djokovic he's only dropped two sets on route to the final he's been serving great he's got the history as well of the court it's just so hard to not not back him despite how well Alcaraz is playing so um yeah we will we will we will wait and see but uh we've also got um from a British point of view we've got Neil Skupski in the men's doubles final they're going to be facing Zabayos and Marcel Granolas of Spain in Saturday's final on, on centre court Neil Skupski's never won a sorry a men's doubles 
Grand Slam title. And I didn't realize this, Chris. His brother, Ken, can't be there because he booked a holiday to Ibiza. I mean, I hope he's having a wonderful time, but I think this might not necessarily be um, the best thing that you could do from uh, a, a brotherly perspective. But I believe he also helps with his coaching, so I'm not sure why he thought second week of Wimbledon, there's no way that Neil's going to make it. Let's get some flights to Ibiza. So it doesn't say that they have faith he, that's in you, commitment does it? To the, that's commitment to clubbing, right? Um, yeah. Um, but I mean, yeah, just very quickly, Skupski and Kohlhoff, do you think they can... I mean, they are the top seeds and... I mean, Zabios and Granolas, uh, yeah, they are very, 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 very handy doubles team. But on the grass courts of Wimbledon, you'd think, you'd think maybe the South Americans are maybe at a little bit of a, you know, disadvantage to someone like a, a Skupski and, and a and a Kulhoff. Yeah, and Skupski's obviously won a couple of uh, mixed titles here as well, so he's very much at home. Um, personally, I'm a Bapana and Ebden fan, mm, so they did yes. take them out to reach the final. They so did. I would say. Uh, I'm going to support the players that, that beat them so that it was worthwhile and makes that even more impressive from Rohan Bopana. Well, we're going to we're going to see we yeah, we've got Brit at least we've got some British interest in in the doubles final. I feel like we just we just have a conveyor belt, don't we, of of really good uh men's doubles players, just don't slot we? Slot someone into a mixed or a men's doubles final. There's always going to be a Brit somewhere. There's always going to be year. someone there. Exactly. Um but yes, uh like yeah, good luck to Good luck to Neil Skupski and Wesley Kulhoff. We're going to take a quick break now, but join us in the second half where Joel and Kim will be taking a look back on all the action from the women's semi-finals. So do not go anywhere. Welcome back to the Tennis Weekly Podcast sponsored by DownloadTennis.com. And now we're going to move on to look back at the ladies' semifinals from yesterday. Uh, Chris has actually now transformed into Joel. Um, total... He's disappeared. He has He's disappeared. disappeared. Joel's, Joel's Hello, not listeners. With us. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Hello from the past. Um, this is recorded uh, on Thursday night. Um, but Joel, you were at the Sabalenka Jabor semi. Uh, so I think that is the natural place to begin. And this was really the, the match of the day because it was a three-setter, quite a lot of ups and downs. Jabor coming back from losing that first set to win and make a second straight final here at Wimbledon. Um, Who would have thought? No one was thinking. No one was thinking. I know we weren't thinking uh, Marquetta von Drusova was going to get to, uh, you know, a, a Grand Slam singles final um, at Wimbledon. But I don't, also don't think we were expecting Onzipour to to repeat what she did last year. Yeah, I feel like the two Slam finals she reached last year. I think because she'd struggled a bit this season, I think maybe we thought that they were sort of compartmentalised, that maybe this wasn't her year. But I'm I'm really impressed with how she's reacted and, and gone deep, you know, to the final. Maybe she's going to, you know, right the wrongs of, of last year and, and get the job done. And because she said, you know, today, the old me would have lost this match today. Yeah. So she's clearly learned from her experience last year, that final with Rebecca, and she's put that into practice. So... Yeah, she was a set and uh four two down. So what did what did you see from Jabir to, to pull the match back and win it? And and she was a she was four two down in the uh in the in the tie sorry, she was four two up in that first set tiebreaker as well. And um it it was always I think going to be an, a judgment of how she responded um to losing that first set given she was up in the tiebreak. And when she went four two down in that second set, I thought, oh, the you know the writing's on the wall here because she does, I think, get down on herself. And when she gets into that sort of negative mood on the court, when she's sort of moping about walking from side to side, not the most positive character on the court, um, it can get away from her really, really quickly. So I think it was just the mindset that she had, and and I think. It was very positive and I think that's really hard to do when you've got someone like Sabalenka dropping these bombs from her serve across the net. It must be so frustrating when there are so many cheap points from aces and unreturned serves. You know, you're thinking like, when's my opportunity going to come? Am I going to get those those break point moments? And I, and I think it was just making sure that from Jabor's point of view, she was patient. She didn't rush it and she just backed herself and and had that belief that I will get these moments at some point. And when she did go 
4-2 down in that second set. With the crowd on her side, she she roared back. Yeah, and I mean, definitely a fan favourite and especially, you know, with the Wimbledon crowd here fully behind her. I expect in the final, they're going to be behind uh, Ons as well. Mm. And, you know, she's beaten, you know, we're talking about Svitolina's path to the final, but uh, to the semi-final, sorry. But on Jabor, to get to now a final, she's had to beat a lot of Grand Slam champions on the way as well. Andrescu, Kvitova, Rabakina, Sabalenka. That is a tough draw, um, you know, including Wimbledon champions in there as well. So, I just think, you know, this was yet another um, showing of of how well she has, you know, raised her game from those early rounds um, and just shown such tenacity to come through. And what do you think Sabalenka, you know, looking back from her perspective, where, where would she be thinking, ah, that's where I went wrong? You know, what what will she be learning from, from this match? I think she'll be disappointed that she wasn't able to close it um, f- from a set and, and 4-2 up. Um, it really was, it really was on her racket. And um, I, I think she was getting frustrated with herself. I, I was getting, you know, you talk about the old Ons Jabor, um, you know, would have lost that match. I think felt at times in that, that second set, that we saw the old arena Sabalenka. I was I was almost kind of waiting for her to erupt on on the court because she was getting a lot more frustrated, a lot more tense. There are a lot more stern stares to her player box, and um, I think she just let the situation get to her, and she wasn't able to handle. I think Onzibor playing lights out tennis, and if you put if you put that on the flip side, I think Onzibor was much better at handling. Sabalenka and almost accepting right you're going to play great tennis and fine if that's going to win you all these points I can't do much about it but I'm going to make the most of those moments where maybe your your level dips and I think with Sabalenka she let your boar's peak level in that second set really get at her and to me that was that was the beginning of her downfall. Mm. And a bit of um, an interesting decision by Wimbledon to close the roof as well. What, what were your thoughts on that? Yeah, it was a bit of a funny one. It was, I'm not gonna, it was almost like we were in a greenhouse um, inside. Um, I know that there were chances of, of showers, but the fact that this match went a full three sets, I don't think there was any showers, there was any rain. I think it was a little bit disappointing, to be honest, that it was played under the roof. It does create a really noisy atmosphere. I'm not going to lie inside. And to be part of that is like, is so much fun. <laughs> and, um, you know, on your board just you know, brings out the best, I think, in in crowds. And, um, you know, I, I've got to say, you know, Sabalenka as well. She is a, a fiery character on the court. But I still think that cr- the crowds do appreciate that and, and do get behind her. But certainly, yeah, with the roof closed... I just don't think this was a match that should have been played um, with the roof on. If we're going back to that talk on, you know, Wimbledon's an outdoor tournament and we should be playing without a roof at every single opportunity, well, then why on earth are we playing this ladies' semi-final with the roof on? Yeah, it does seem a bit um, questionable given last week, arguably they, they weren't closing the roof when they should have done. And this this week, it's the other way around. Um, I mean, you mentioned um, like Sabalenka and getting, you know, still getting some support from the crowd. Um, one of the things we'd mentioned previously was that if she were to find herself in the final, you know, there might be some awkward moments should her opponent be Svitolina. But in reality, neither of them are in the final. It's the other way around because Onjabor will be playing against Marketa von Drusova come Saturday in the final. So let's look at that first semi-final of the day. Von Drusova up against Svitolina. This uh, match was a was a lot quicker than the the second semi and a bit more straightforward. Straight set six three six three for Vondrusova. At one point, it was looking like it was going to be a bit of a rout because Vondrusova had a point for five love in that second set, but Svitolina did so well to, to kind of peg the set back, didn't she? To, to four three. And do you know what? I was wondering, oh, is this going to be the is start this be of the moment? a comeback? Yeah. Yeah. Is this going to be a comeback? But no, no. no. Um, yeah, it was a step too far. Uh, for for Alina Svitolina, I think it's interesting if you look at her her path. You would say in in you know all of her matches up to, up to this point, she, she was going in as the underdog, and uh, that that favoured her. Um, you know she was you know upset after upset, but 
in this match against Von Drusova, she was arguably going in as the slight favourite and it was a completely different story. Her timing was completely off. There were regulation shots that she was quite easily missing and I was I was a bit confused. I was a bit flummoxed. I think everyone else in the, the arena was was shocked and it got away from her so quickly. I don't think she kind of almost had the time to think about, you know, what Von Drusera is doing and how do I combat that? Because it, it was just getting away from her so quickly and you were just thinking, oh my God, is this going to be, it's going to be over in, in less than an hour? Yeah, it was um, looking very one-way traffic at, at one point. And I think that did play a part. I think Svitlina would have felt that that pressure to, you know, all this hype about this like journey she's going on and also wanting to do it for her country. You know, inevitably, eventually that's going to get to you. And, you know, she's never been beyond the semi-final no. of the slam before. So this is like her own duck now. It's like, you know, she she's still not gone any deeper. Well, I, I do think that. And I think we've got to remember that the peak Alina Svitolina before taking a break from tennis had, you know, did have these moments where similarly, you know, maybe it wasn't like quarterfinals, but certainly she's still not made a Grand Slam final. And, um, you know, it's still a barrier, I think, and a hurdle that she's she needs to overcome. And, um, you know, she had an, this this opportunity against Von Drusova, but I don't know, maybe those those previous experiences you know she's been in a Wimbledon semi-final before I think she's also got to a, a US Open semi-final where she lost to Serena Williams but she should be doing better I think in these these big moments as much as it's hard to kind of obviously begrudge her I mean it's still ridiculous getting to a Grand Slam semi-final so early on in your comeback but um there's still that work to be done there and I think she might well she will take confidence that she could reach a, a maiden slam final, I think, at some point in the future. But it's almost like there are familiar, familiar weaknesses to to her game and and where she gets to in terms of her grand slam run. Yeah, and um, I think you know, regardless of of what happened today, you know, she's far exceeded everyone's expectations yeah. coming in as a wild card. So she has absolutely nothing to be ashamed of. Um, it's been an amazing tournament and. You know, going back to Von Drusova into her second Grand Slam final, this time last year, she came to London to watch a friend play in qualifying. And mm-hmm. um, Von Drusova had just had like wrist surgery. Her her wrist was in a, in a cast. She couldn't play for about six months last year. So very different story 12 months later. And, you know, she's got her own story. You know, since she reached that Grand Slam final, she's had two surgeries. Um, You know, it's been quite difficult for her. She did get a silver medal at the Olympics. But apart from that, there's been very little kind of highlights. So, you know, she is she's written her own story here, hasn't she? Yeah. And I, I think she's still got a losing record in her career on grass. So to think of the run she's been on, I think she's beaten four seeded players en route. You know, she had that fantastic win, I thought, against Jesse Pagulo. And I think here, I think I was impressed in terms of how she had that wobble, you know, in, in the second set. And and we were thinking, is this Svitolina's chance to capitalise? And the, the way she responded to that and, and sort of shut the door on that and, and closed it out in straight sets, um, for me, was, you know, very impressive because, you know, she's not been in this situation for, for a long time, for, you know, for what for four years when you know when she had that that run in uh at Roland Garros so that to me was was impressive and and just the level of tennis that she brought I mean I know we can talk about how you know Svitolina didn't bring her a game to center court but Von Drusova was ready to go you could see that I think there were you know she she broke Svitolina's serve twice early on um yes I think Svitolina got one of those back but it just showed that she was she was ready to go particularly on the the Svitolina serve and when it came to her own service games, you know, she's got a fantastic serve, got her some free points, her forehand as well. It was just a little bit of a different proposition, I think, that that's, that Svitolina has maybe been been dealing with before because it's a bit loopier, it's a bit more spin. And I, I think she was struggling with that that contact point and the, the timing. Um, and as a result, it, it, she was just sort of leaking errors in, in my view. And um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how I think Von Drusova goes in 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 a final but she certainly i think got like the variety that maybe uh anonzi ball has because she does you know bring out the drop shots and the and you know the lobs at times she is a very capable all-court player um and it's i think just nice to see all those tools in action given 
as you said, the, the struggles that she's had with her wrists um, and the surgeries that she's had in the past. Yeah, and we know players who can exhibit a lot of variety have done very well at, at Wimbledon. Mm. Um, obviously, Jabor, like the likes of Ash Barty as well. And I think we could be on for a really entertaining final. Um, they're, they're both all-court players and have that kind of variety. And um, I think Von Drewsper as well. I'm, I'm quite liking, you know, her style. She's got a lot of tattoos like over her arms, which she describes as art. And I think, you know, it's nice to sort of get her more visibility because I bet a lot of people coming to Wimbledon, uh, watching Wimbledon, like I've never heard of her because if you don't follow tennis all year round, you may not know that she got to the Grand Slam, you know, final four years ago. And, you know, I don't she think is... a lot of tennis fans re- like remember, no. remember that moment. Yeah. It happened so long ago. Um, but yeah. And, and I also like, I was reading her, um, I mean, her, I think her, her boyfriend was, is, was still at home, you know, great great show of support there um no given yeah that there was like very little expectation i think he was on cat sitting duties i think also her her coach said he would get a tattoo um if she won a trophy so i think they're both going to be a little bit hot under the collar at the moment in terms of uh you know where von drusiver is is going but um it's it's just funny how i think you know we've had i think two players who have come into the tournament um there's been probably less little expectation on them, maybe obviously a little bit more on on Zubor, but from Vindrusova's point of view, it just shows, I think, when no one's talking about you, it can probably raise your raise your game. And, and going in into these matches as the underdog, it's almost sometimes the better position. Mm. And um, it's really, really worked for Vindrusova so far. And that final will be interesting because... She's won the last two matches against Jabor. And although you maybe would say Jabor is the favourite given you know, her Wimbledon um, you know, run last year and that experience that she can draw upon, Von Drusev has got the she's got the she's got the the know how to beat um Jabor from this season. Yeah, she's had two wins over her this season, I think both on hard court. Overall in their head to head, they're three and three. Um, both former Grand Slam finalists. Obviously, Yabor's been in two previous finals and also, you know, one was at Wimbledon. So I guess the edge was experience there. Um, but I, I, if I was a player, I'd rather be the underdog. I, I would feel less pressure that way. So, you know... I, Is there an underdog in the final, do you think? Or do you think they're both equal? I think Von Drusva is still like the underdog because she's lower ranked. She's actually unseeded. She's the first unseeded women's finalist since 1963, which wow. is actually surprising because I, I I guess it's maybe more of a Wimbledon uh, thing. So we've definitely seen unseeded finalists, you know, at the other slams on the women's side, I'm sure. But um, it's going to be an interesting one. Um, I, I think it could certainly be a th- three set three setter I, I don't see it being sort of a very one-sided final I think we're hopefully in for you know a, a decent encounter and I would have von Drusva as the the underdog but I think I think your ball will have a bit more expectation on her because of last year I think mm. the, the natural expectation will be oh you know it's her turn now this year um, whether she can you know rise above that and not let it get to her again yeah and I think she's gonna just need to keep that positive mindset that she you know she displayed I think against uh you know Sabalenka in the semi-finals I almost want her to not think about uh, you know that that Wimbledon run she had last year in that final because she came into it and and it, the, the weight and the expectation it just dragged her down and it dragged her level of tennis down and she should be I think thinking about how she played against Sabalenka from from 4-2 down in that second set because it was it was so impressive in terms of how she dealt with that power and aggression coming back at her. She was fighting power with power at times. And, you know, when she brought out the the drop shots as well at the net, it really did feel like I'm a woman on a mission here. And uh, that mission is to, to win my first, my first ever Grand Slam title. Yeah. Will it be third time lucky? I mean, mm. Joel, uh, in Tennis Weekly time-honoured fashion, let's make a prediction. Who are you going for your Wimbledon women's uh, singles champion and how many sets do you think the final is going to be? I'm going to go, I do think it's going to be up and down and I think it's going to be Yabor in three sets. I'm hoping and expecting we're going to get a lot of extended rallies. I think it's going to be quite fun. I think they're both known, I think, as baseline players, but I certainly think there's going to be some net points as well. 
Um, and I think it's going to be a really entertaining tussle that could come down to who handles the occasion better because both these players have been in the situation before in terms of a Grand Slam final, but both of them have not come out as the, as the victor and they will be wanting to make the most of this moment because from Yonzu Boar's point of view, an unseeded player in a ladies' singles final, you'd absolutely take that. And from Marquetta Von Drusseva's point of view, she's probably thinking the same thing because of all, of all the players she could have maybe thought it might be, Onzu Boar might not have been one of them. Yeah, absolutely. So we will see. I think Yabor is going to be the champion. I'm going either, yeah, three sets, I think, or very or two pretty tight sets. Mm. You know, it could be a 7-5 seven six job um but hopefully it'll be a, a fun a fun final and you know we didn't see Svitolina get to the singles final we didn't see a, a victory for Ukraine in the singles but we did see a victory for Ukraine in the mixed doubles uh the final has happened um on a Thursday um evening which I guess is, is a big change from yeah, the, the was, traditional schedule I was gonna ask you I was gonna ask you about that before we get into into mm. this match um which I which I was there for what do you make of Grand Slam finals on a Thursday. I don't like it. I think it's not giving them the sense of occasion. I think it needs to be on the weekend at the, at the very um, earliest, I think, a Friday night. Mm. But I really like the mixed doubles being the Sunday evening, like after the men's final. It's like the last kind of event of the championships. I quite liked that because it was, you know, often mixed doubles is very fun, a bit frivolous, and it kind of always provided that like nice end to the tournament. But for some reason, I think they they did this last year. It's been been made earlier in the, in the schedule. I do not like it one bit. Actually, I think it it's a bit like can we just get this out of the way as as early as possible? And I I, I think it should be played on the weekend. A Friday night, I think, would be really fun. Actually, you know, in terms of atmosphere, it's the start of the weekend. I think that would be a really really good slot for it. But it, it feels a little bit underwhelming. I think playing it so early on when you're thinking. You you typically associate finals with 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 the weekend and to put it on a on a weekday evening it doesn't feel prime time enough given we have had such a boom I think with mixed tennis in general um, over the last over the last few seasons we've seen how much fans love it to have it just sort of wheeled out I think on Thursday early evening doesn't necessarily feel right to me. Yeah, and I mean, let's let's look at what that actually happened in the in the mixed doubles. So we had Ludmila uh, Kitchenok of Ukraine and Matej Pavic of Croatia. They won the title, so um, it was a pretty pretty close match: six four, six seven, six three. They beat Joran Vliegen and uh, Yifan Zhu uh, to win their first, I think, mixed doubles title together. They actually played together six years ago, and the physio um, was sort of like a mutual, I think, contact and suggested that yeah. they play again together. I, I, if I'm um, the physio, Kim, I'm, I'm expecting a bonus there. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm more like a referral fee. Yeah, I think um, they played some very, very good tennis throughout. I mean, it was a very entertaining um, encounter. Pavic and, and Kitchenot, I'm not going to lie, I think they could have maybe got it done in two sets. And actually at the start of that third, I was kind of wondering, had they missed their moment? Um, I think they maybe got a little bit nervous about that um, at the start of the third set, but they came through um, in the end. And I think, if I was being really honest, I think they were the better pairing. I think they showed the the better tennis. And, um, you know, Vegan and, and Zhu were, were great. But yeah, Kitchenot and Pavic, they, they were on, to me, they were on the same wavelength a little, a little bit more. Yeah, I think so. And and Pavic, I think this was his first mixed doubles um, title here. So it was nice for him to tick that one off at Wimbledon. You know, he's such a experienced, you know, top, top doubles player. So I think um, really, really nice for him. And you've got a good bit of doubles to finish off your day on centre court. Yeah, well, and it was George. nice. And it was nice, I think, to see Ukraine have their moment yeah, with, with Kitchenok. I think everyone was looking at, Elena Svitolina as the you know the the poster child for the you know the Ukraine cause and we didn't get that moment but to get it from from Kitchenok she was very passionate about that in her speech in the in the ceremony afterwards and um, there was a standing ovation for it around the um, around around centre court and it was a really poignant moment so um, yeah I think it was nice to see that from that perspective and uh, I do think the Wimbledon organizers will be breathing a sigh of relief that we're not going to be getting 
Ukraine versus Belarus in that ladies singles final. Yeah, they've maybe um, swerved that one, haven't they? In a potentially awkward non-handshake. Um, on that note, that rounds up our pod on the semi-final action from Wimbledon. We'll be back on Sunday night uh, to cap off the finals weekend. The home stretch. We are on the home stretch, aren't we? But uh, yes, finals finals action is... Well, finals action has already happened with the mixed doubles, but uh, we've got plenty of finals action still to come. So listeners, I hope you've enjoyed our latest episode of the Tennis Weekly podcast. Remember to subscribe to us to stay up to date on all the action still to come from Wimbledon. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all major podcasting platforms out there. And if you like what you're hearing, then make sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also follow us on social media or email the show. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube and TikTok at Tennis Weekly Pod. You can email us on tennisweeklypod at gmail.com and don't forget to check out our website, tennisweekly.co.uk. And we will be back on Sunday at Tennis Weekly HQ for our Wimbledon finals catch-up. Very, very exciting. So I hope you could join us for that. But in the meantime, it's goodbye from Kim. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. We'll see you again soon. <laughs>